So, welcome everybody to um, the LSE Literary Festival and to the Forum for European Philosophy and Department of Philosophy event on um, travel literature and travel photography. Um, my name is Christina Hussard, I'm a fellow here at the Philosophy Department and Deputy Director of the Forum. And um, the idea of putting this event together for the Literary Festival is, is really to explore what role travel writing and travel photography can play in, on the one hand, opening us up to new experiences, opening rooms of imagination, helping us see things, experience things that we wouldn't have otherwise noticed, seen, experienced. Um, but on the other hand, how that can also have uh, a flip side to it, namely that by reading certain things and by, by looking at photos of certain things before we set out on our own travels, as it were, we already um, then have bring with us certain preconceptions about the things that we're going to see and the things that we're going to experience. And that maybe uh, precludes us in a certain sense also from making other experiences. And we want to sort of explore those issues and related issues um, a bit today. Also another thing I think um, that's interesting that sort of comes up in the recent uh, in recent developments is what role does actually travel <coughs> writing, professional travel writing and travel photography play in the age of social media social media where each of us is basically carrying a camera around. You have blogs, you have lots of information online, um, you can tailor the information that you want before you travel some somewhere to your own needs and what sort of what role does that play in, in changing the field of travel writing as well and what role can travel writing and travel photography play in that sort of changing environment. Um, and here with us to discuss these issues are uh, uh, Alex Gillespie on the, on the one hand who is a lecturer in social psychology here at the LSE and the whole idea of this event partly grew out of a discussion that I had with him after another event that we did a few months ago after which um, we had dinner and sort of we started talking about things and he said that one of his research interests was um, to explore the relationship between tourism, uh, tourists, interactions with the people they encounter on their travels and how that is influenced by what they had previously seen and read. Um, and he's, he was doing some research on that in, uh, in certain parts of India, and I think he's going to talk to us about that research and see what sort of conclusions he draws from that. And then there's um, Abigail King, who is a travel writer and photographer who um, has uh, circled the globe twice. It's now partly based in Spain, but originally um, from England. She also um, runs a blog that inspires travel and invites us to explore foreign places where she invites us to um, you know, embark on more unusual travels and think about the world in a different way. Um, and I think her career in a way can also be seen as an interesting travel in itself because she made the journey from neuroscientist and emergency doctor to professional travel writer and photographer. So that's that's interesting in itself. And you know, blog says that the blog is called um, uh, the lab. What is it? Sorry, the travel <laughs> inside the travel. inside the travel lab. Exactly. Sorry, and sh and she thinks of a lab as a place for insight and discovery and for inspiration. And in that sense, draws a parallel between the lab, the scientific lab, and the travel lab. So I think that's that's quite. Interesting. And then there's Rachel Clare, who is um, an award-winning author, broadcaster, novelist, and journalist. Um, one of his recent books, which I think is a really fascinating project, is called A Single Swallow, for which he traveled from South Africa to South Wales following 
um, migrating swallows and, and writing about them. And I think that sounds like a really fascinating project. But I think he's also recently traveled on a container ship um, and uh, yeah, has, has made many travels himself and is, is writing about these. Um, and I, I had a look a bit at, at your website as well and um, uh, certain comments that people left there. And I think one of the interesting things is that um, we shouldn't sh think of travel writing and photography just in terms of inspiring us to actually go and, and make the travel. Of course, we can also just travel from the comfort of our own homes, as it were, and maybe also see our own backyards with new eyes. So a lot of people were saying how they have swallows in their gardens and, and see it, look at them now in a very different way after reading the book than they used to. Um, so yeah, so I think we'll have a lot of interesting things to talk about. And the way that we'll do this is um, we'll start with each of the three speakers giving a little 10-minute introduction, presentation of their work and their take on these issues. And then um, I'll ask them some questions and then we'll open it up to questions from you. And with that, I'll hand over to Alex. <coughs> I think that clock is working, so this Thank you. One of the most obvious, but I think interesting things about travel tourism is that people go somewhere they've never been. And it's kind of odd, because they're motivated by an image. They have an image of the place they're going to, and yet they've never been there. So non-human animals go places, but they don't quite know where they're going. Humans have an image of where they're going. And how that comes about, this is about the images we see in the media, the images we see on films, and so on. The, the, the research I did was in Ladakh, in North India, which is, is sort of part of Tibet. And even if you haven't been to Ladakh, and I tell you it's part of Tibet, you have an image in your head. And if you haven't been there and you have an image, you have to interrogate, where does that come from? Is that a real image? How would that connect with what was there if you went there? That's the kind of question I want to explore in the next couple of minutes. You might have an image from Lost Horizon, a book which became a film about a plane crash up high in the Himalaya where they discover Shangri-La. So you might have an image in your head of Shangri-La. You might think of seven years in Tibet. You can't see that very clearly, but there's sort of Patala Palace there. Uh, did anyone think of the Patala Palace when I said Tibet? Yeah, sure. yeah. It's, it's the common thing which comes up. Yeah. Um, seven years in Tibet, the film, 1997, and again you see the Patala Palace, these reoccurring images. And what I did was to talk to tourists, a lot of tourists in this area, Ladakh, and I asked them to show me their photographs. So I accumulated well over a thousand photographs from 15 or so tourists. And I interviewed them on the photograph, saying, well, why did you take this photo, and so on. And I'll show you a little bit how they relate to that world of the media which they encountered before they ever came to Ladakh. So the National Geographic, um, the first National Geographic article on Ladakh was 1978. And again, it begins with a sort of Patala Palace. In, in Ladakh, they called it the Little Patala Palace. It's not the real Patala Palace, but it's, it's the iconic image of Ladakh. And you can see how that's possibly distilled through the mass media. And when tourists go and they take photographs, and 
they take photographs like this of the little Patala palaces because those are the images which drew them there. And um, here's another tourist photograph. Uh, again, a different kind of. Uh, these are um, that's a castle, and another one. This is a Buddhist um, gompa, a kind of monastery up on a hill. And all these in, in, in the, the thousand or more tourist photographs I had, this was the most common genre. And you can see how it relates to the, the media and the images which, which suck tourists off to Ladakh. This is the cover of a guidebook, um, again showing one of these monasteries up on the, the side of a sort of cliff. They're, they're normally quite high up because there's no flat land really in Ladakh, and if they do have flat land, they use it for grazing, so most of the buildings are up high. And then we go back to the tourist photographs, and you see exactly the same monastery, of course, photographed from the same uh, angles and so on, maybe even slightly better photographed, and again, numerous examples of this. If we open the pages on trekking in Ladakh, you find this image of a, this is a bridge over a rocky sort of crevasse with the suspiciously blue water, you agree, and blue sky. Um, and then we go to the tourist photographs, and you find exactly the same kind of thing, that the bridge across a somewhat more murky uh, uh, river and uh, slightly less steep sides. And this tourist was even less fortunate if they just <laughs> had uh, a, a sort of wooden bridge over again, the murky water. Um, but you see these, uh, uh, there's a sort of several genres of photograph which you find in the media, and then these are reproduced in, in the tourists' photographs. And they would be the, the gompa on the hill, the, the crevasse, and, and the landscape, which I haven't gone into, mountain scenes. But let's move to people, because the Ladakhi people are quite striking. This is, uh, again, from the first National Geographic article, 1978, and you see a Ladakhi woman on the front. And this is, a, along with the, 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 the sort of Patala Palace image, this is the other iconic image which tourists have in their mind. If you open the, the National Geographic, this is an image of a monk dancing. They're the monks, they're Buddhist monks, and they do sort of <coughs> festivals where they do slightly spirit-possessed dances. And looking in the, the, the tourist photographs, you find again, yes, exactly, definitely the monks are there dancing, exactly as they appear in films and so on. The, this is a tourist here taking a photograph of some people getting ready to dance. And these uh, festivals are staged largely, uh, so it's quite easy to um, get photographs of the people dancing. What is more difficult is to get photographs of the people. So seven years in Tibet, of course, you have these images of these old faces, kind of weathered and, and very characteristic of, of a sort of traditional life. But in the tourist photographs, you don't find these old people. In fact, you very rarely find any people. And that's odd. That's a disjunction between the, the mass-mediated realm and, and the lived photography realm. And this is why I asked some tourists, well, you know, about their photographs. And Barry says, um, I try not to take pictures of the people, uh, though I want to, Tom. I feel embarrassed to do it because it's like, it's like making them feel freakish, Barry. It's like, look at those freaks there. That's just horrible to the people. So the, the, the tourists actually are very guilty about taking photographs. They feel they're objectifying them, the people making it look like a zoo or something like that. Those are the things which we heard. So instead, they take photographs of Ladakhi toilets. 
Um, and this is odd because uh, in, in, in all the collections of photographs I looked at, everyone had a photograph of a Ladakhi toilet. But the Ladakhi toilets don't appear in the films and in the guidebooks and so on. And all the tourists thought they were being really individual doing this, that this was peculiar, and yet it was the most common thing, in the sense that they were all doing it. So this is what in the literature is called a sort of post-tourist stance. They, they give up on the, on the image of the old lady or whatever, and they do something a bit more quirky. Um, yeah. Now, the tourists are in a, in a difficult spot, and, and let me illustrate. I ask, again, another tourist, you know, what, photo, what pictures have you taken? And uh, Morten, a guy from uh, the Netherlands, says he's taken lots of landscapes. Everyone takes lots of landscapes, but there's this absence of people I mentioned. And he says, ah, but also of people. I've also taken some photos of people, but really sneaky. But um, um, I'm, not sh I'm sure they don't know. It's different to someone shoving a lens in someone's face from a meter distance. And I said, but if you were going to take a photograph of people, who would you choose to photograph? Well, the old women, of course, and the old men. Why? Because they look nice. They're characteristics. But when you want to take a picture of an old woman, try to have a little relation with them, not just like run through the country and take some pictures like Japanese. Now, this idea of Japanese, German tourists, all, everyone was against the idea that you would run through the country and take pictures of, of people without having this relation. If you have a relation, it's somewhat genuine or authentic. But of course, Horton has just said that he, um, that's, right, let me just, get, he has just said up here that he takes really sneaky photographs which is quite the opposite of having a relation with people. So tourists are caught. They don't want to be doing it. They criticize other tourists for doing it, and then they try and do it. And that's the, the, the tourist predicament. Um, but it gets more complex. So there's one last point. Um, this is a book uh, called The Hidden Faces of India. So this is someone who's gone and photographed the faces of the people that tourists can't photograph because they feel guilty doing it. It's a whole, whole book of faces from across India, and I saw it in a bookshop, um, and I was excited because of my research, and I thought, oh, do they have any photographs of Ladakh? I looked, yes, they do, excellent, some, some Ladakhi young people, and what does it say down here? It says, archers from the Ladakhi village of Skirbuchan, traveling to Leh for the annual archery festival. Wonderful, traditional photograph. Um, I, the reason I was so excited when I saw this is because I'd been there when the photograph was taken. So, this is the real setup. Uh, this is uh, sorry, the guy who took the photograph and wrote the book. These are the archers, who aren't really archers. They're just like these guys wearing baseball caps and Hawaii shirts, uh, except they were paid to stand up on this wall for the photograph. And there's other guys over here who are holding the cigarettes of these guys, <laughs> having to tell them to stop smoking while the photograph is being taken. So images are constructed, right? Uh, and tourists know this as well, because the, the images which are guiding them uh, from seven years in Tibet, from Lost Horizon and so on, these are fictional stories. They're not claiming to be true. And uh, my sort of conclusion on this would be, not that in a sense this is fake or false. Uh, it is, but it's all part of the imagination of Ladakh. And, and Ladakh, or Tibet, for us, is an imaginative space where we put hopes and dreams and fears. 
uh, a lot of hopes in Ladakh, the Shangri-La ideas, it's the salvation of civilization to some extent, traditional life continuing. And it's an imaginative space which we explore in fiction and tourism is, is just taking that one step further. Instead of traveling through the world of fiction, you travel into Ladakh and look for these moments which uh, represent something unique. I'm just saying, as, as we were talking earlier, and this is probably a point to conclude on, the first travelers to Ladakh didn't notice anything. They really didn't. It's a barren landscape. There's very few trees. It's rock, and there's not much nice. Yeah? And so the travel writers from um, in back hundreds of years really just said, there's nothing here, it's a wasteland. And now when tourists go, they see lots of things. Things jump out at them. Why? That's the world of fiction and imagination opening up the reality of Ladakh, which was in a sense invisible before that realm of imagination was layered over it. So I'll leave it there. And, uh,
with the world's illiterate population standing at under a billion, and users of Facebook alone at rather more than half that, you might well conclude that for the first time in human <coughs> history, there are now more writers than readers. If you define a writer as someone who publishes for a general audience, and a reader as someone who devotes significant portions of their time to literature in whatever form. So there's never been a more available, readable world. And the question is, do we see or understand it better for writing about it more? The amount of content, always an interesting word, available in the virtual world seems to rival the scope of the actual world itself. Does it make for a more legible, comprehensible, revealed planet? It must do, logically, it must do. Even if we limit ourselves to old-fashioned paper books, there are more of these, and they are more available now than ever there were. But at the same time, we know, the world expands in exponentially self-replicating space. Every one of the seven billion of us now alive represents a perception of the world. If the literate six billion were to write down all they knew, or just to write every day, we would need a parallel world of six billion readers to take it in, even in a fraction. So the familiar paradox, the greater our ability as a species to collect and disseminate information, the smaller becomes the proportion the individual is able to assimilate. We are all tweeters, status updaters, ship advisors, all travel writers now, and fewer of us are travel readers. Consumption of travel writing has dropped off recently, and dramatically, in parallel with the increase in the appetite for historical fiction. Perhaps readers yearn for eras when the field of information was smaller. Perhaps we long for the marvellous and reductive power of hindsight. It's an interesting time to be a travel writer. My own strategy uh, is as old-fashioned as the genre. I go to places, if I can, where the world's gaze does not fall readily, and I try to give an honest account of them, the aim being to create something which is, to the extent that I can manage it, beautiful and true. And of course, that enterprise is doomed to failure, but you hope for honourable failure. Who are those people beyond the horizon? What are their lands like? How do they live? What do they desire? The responses I get from readers suggest that even with so much information available, people still want to listen to a voice speaking clearly. Some read because they cannot or would not go where the writer has been, and some because they did go there and wish to share recollections, and some because they aim to go and look for inspiration and reassurance. Many letters and emails suggest that taking issue with that single voice is also hugely satisfying. We've all had arguments with our guidebooks, and I get wonderful, um, most of it friendly abuse from my readers who simply don't agree. Um, Edward Said points out in Orientalism the danger of texts is they give a false reassurance. The world is like this. Voltaire and Cervantes, he say, owe part of their appeal to satirising the authority of texts and those who trust them. We love a firm opinion, even more perhaps than we love a fact. Clarkson and the Daily Mail's columnists have many more readers than the great Robert Fisk in The Independent, many more readers than Marie Colvin and Anna Politkovskaya, who gave their lives in service of fact. This would be entirely depressing were it not for humanity's great redeeming feature, our iconoclasm. Rubbish, we love to say. The world is not like that at all. The heyday of the guidebook and its claims to objectivity and authority, which lasts from Baedeker to the Lonely Planet, 
just before the internet, the great subjectivity engine, produced at its zenith a huge frustration with guidebook hordes. Throw away your guides, came the cry. Discover the world for yourself. E.M. Forster has tremendous fun with Lucy Honeychurch in Florence, in a room with a view. Can she actually see anything without her guidebook? The answer is a terrifying yes. The world, art, but just glimpse for a second before the voices of more learned, the instructing, drown it out again. Inviting, as the idea of throwing away your guides is, so much easier to ignore books than to read them, it's also a false opposition. The absolutely invaluable part of any guidebook is their list of further reading. Even the most meagre acquaintance with literature from or about a place enriches our perceptions of it and therefore our experience. The best way to meet a place is in company with a local. Meetings in company with a book come to distant second, but it is still second. What is the world, after all? Only what has been and what is. What is capable of encompassing these limitless things? Well, how about fraction? How about Russia in the Napoleonic Wars? Tolstoy? How about a smaller fraction? The left bank, Paris, Simon de Beauvoir? Great writing, and greatly cared for writing, is our best hope. It takes an ignorant, arrogant traveller or a professional psychogeographer to turn up somewhere new and say, my opinion of this is all that counts. And as a travel writer, I'm very aware of that ignorance and arrogance. I let the psychogeographers off, people like Will Self and Ian Sinclair, because they do send dispatches from the kind of places which only J.G. Ballard could love, the interzones and ring roads. They were indeed travel writers in Marco Polo's sense. Nobody had ever sent dispatches from the M25 or the Westway before they did. At its best, travel writing takes history, myth, fact and perception, three-part story, to one part actuality and turns them into art, something that the, about the actual that reaches beyond it. There are more things in earth and heaven than our philosophies, and thank God it will always be so. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, wrote Shelley. He'd never been to Egypt, and I don't believe he met such a traveller. Rather, he read about the statue of Ramesses the Great, and we think he was inspired by a different statue, that of Ramesses II, which was on his way to London in 1818, and he wrote Ozymandias, and in so doing, created something that will endure longer than the memories of the pharaohs, and longer than the stones that inspired it. I'd say it is art we need, and there is art in travel, and there is art in writing about travel, and there is art in Good afternoon, everyone. I hope to keep you awake for the next five to ten minutes as I go through my presentation, looking at how literature and photography change the world we see, which was the question that was, uh, well, the statement, rather, that was sent to me. I'm going to start my presentation in spectacularly bad form by talking about myself. Um, but there is a point to it. 
I work in a number of different fields. Uh, I consider myself a journalist. I write about science and I write about travel. And I write in a number of conventional uh, publications, the names of which you will probably recognise and I've listed here. If any of you are into social media, I uh, tweet from Abigail King. But then, in this brave new world, I'm also a blogger and I tweet from Inside Travel Lab. And I spend over half my time now working in social media as well as these more traditional outlets. And it's that uh, aspect that I thought I'd talk about today. And just because people ask and get confused, um, yes, I trained as a doctor and I worked as a doctor for a number of years and then I left and I don't do that anymore. I now do travel writing in whichever shape or form you want to describe it. It struck me when looking at literature and photography, and I take a really wide look at it. I do include Twitter, I include videos in my mind when I think of that. I think of representations of travel. And probably before the internet, you had three main groups. You had the perfect brochure setting, publications, you go into a travel agent, the beautiful image that you want to see. You have, this isn't one of my photos, the others are, this is much better, um, from Travel Photography Year Awards. You have what I suppose I'd describe as art, something that is really intense and something emotional. And then you have places we see from the news. And these places, although there are travel sections in newspapers, most of the information we'll read about other places in the world is their bad news. It's about destruction, it's about war, it's about famine. And these are the images of countries that we get. Perfection from those trying to sell us a holiday somewhere. The perhaps more traditional travel photography is very provocative and emotional, really striking images, really striking stories and novels. And the news, which is almost always bad news and a tale of destruction. What I feel, or what I find very, very interesting about the world of social media is that it has opened up a new way for us to see the world. To just give a little bit of context about the numbers involved, studies, a number of studies have shown recently that people now spend more time online than they watch, spend watching television, which until recently was seen as the big broadcasting way, the way to get your message out to people. 100 million people log on to Facebook at least once a day. And of that online time, social networks and blogs are the most popular online category, followed then by online games and instant messaging systems. So what that third point really illustrates is even that time online is not being spent with the traditional publishers. People are on social networks and blogs rather than just reading the dispatches from the BBC. The difference that social media has really brought to all of our screens, to my mind, are these points. Realism. Social media gives you the really realistic photos that, as Alex was talking about earlier, you never used to see. Those photos of the toilets that, as it turns out, everybody he spoke to have taken, these are now on blogs and Twitter and across the internet. This is what people are uploading on their phones, saying, you'll never believe the toilet I've just found here. So that gap that was there before is really changing. Secondly, immediacy. I've followed now a number of uh, 
world disasters on travel sites of famous travel bloggers rather than on the news. So somebody who's in New Zealand, for example, writing up an adventure piece, but who was there when the earthquakes hit, is then switching from travel into news and political reporting. And it's a different perspective than you get from the traditional news reporters. Not better, not worse, but different. Somebody who's there for travel and sees the culture in the midst of a disaster and is broadcasting it immediately. Whereas beforehand, you used to have to wait for the article to appear in a magazine or in a novel, or else they'd be in the news. There wasn't this middle zone. Recovery, again coming from national disasters, we have enormous media attention at the moment. There have just been tornadoes in the United States, and Syria has been under siege. These are the images we see of that place. I imagine in 10 years, 20 years' time, mainstream press will cover it again. Probably in a year or so, depending upon what happens, there'll be some features saying, oh, look, this place is now open for business again, come back. But there's almost a silence, usually, about everything that happens in between. And with social media now, that silence is becoming less and less. Those travel writers or citizens who write about travel, however you want to describe them, are often there during the recovery phase. Aid workers are now blogging and broadcasting who are there in the recovery phase. You're filling in that gap with social media. And finally, what I've written down as context, people have spoken already today about guidebooks. I've talked about the news. It's difficult to get a flavour for who your author is. In fact, there's almost an effort, there's an effort in uh, traditional mainstream press to hide the author from the piece. It's third person because that's seen as authoritative. If somebody says this is how it is, we don't really want to think about them as a person because the more we think about them as a person giving us information, the more we realise that they make mistakes just like we do. They have opinions just like we do and the authority is somehow diminished a little. The power of following prominent people on social media is that it gives you longer to get to know that person so when they give an opinion, you can make your own judgement about it. We have a similar thing with columnists and newspapers. This is just on a really expanded scale. So when people do switch genres, you can follow what they think. If they say it's the worst thing they've ever seen and you followed their blog for a year and a half or two years and you know that they've never really seen anything bad before, you can judge what they're saying differently. If, however, it's somebody and they've, they've been an aid worker and they've been writing about every day or every other day about their experiences over 15 years and they say, this is the worst thing I've ever seen, it gives you a completely different feeling. And social media allows you to build more of a picture about the author, whether you're talking about a tweet or a novel, than before. <clears throat> the examples, some of which I've touched on, but the tsunami in Japan, for example, I'd been in Sendai 10 days before it struck, and my photos had just gone up on my site, and they received a huge amount of attention, and I had people writing in to me saying, thank you, thank you, because I wanted to see how this place was before the disaster hit, because everywhere else we look in the mainstream press right now, all we see is the destruction. I've got no idea how to make the image that Alex was talking about because there are hardly any pictures of this place, of what it was like beforehand. The opposite picture, I have colleagues of mine who, as I've mentioned before, in New Zealand for the earthquakes and who covered it just after that, again, when the news 
have lost interest and moved on to the, the next thing. There's writers blogging and tweeting from Iran, giving very different images to the ones that we get on our press. And then I've got both violence and peace across the Middle East, where social media has a very controversial role at the moment, I think, in terms of what we've seen about the last 18 months. Some of it has been counteracting and giving more information and saying that these countries, these places, actually are not involved. And it's a lovely place to come for your holiday, since we're talking about travel. And others are a lot of the pictures and images that we are getting uh, from trouble in that region are coming out through social media because traditional reporters can't get through. And that, of course, opens up a lot of debate that I think the world needs to think about is who do we trust when we see those images? It's no different a problem, who do we trust, when it's the BBC reporter as to when it's a complete unknown. We just have to decide, can we trust the information they're giving us? And the BBC, for example, has one history. This other individual, it depends, you need to judge them. Finally, I was just thinking perhaps a discussion for the future. Instead of how literature and photography change the world we see, given the way that unrest is developing across the world at the moment. And in the context of social media, I would perhaps ask the question of, well, does literature and photography change the world, full stop, when events are reported on and responded to on a massive scale now? And the distinction between news and travel writing and opinion is beginning to blur. Is this a question worth discussing next time? To finish my brief presentation here, in social media fashion, I put this question out to Twitter last night and got a number of responses back and a number of opinions. But I think the most interesting one for today, or perhaps the most relevant one, was a tweet that came back that said simply, travel, reading, and writing. Whichever way you look at it, it's just different ways of doing the same thing. Thank you very much. really interesting, fascinating points and, and potential questions were brought up and um, one thing that I picked up that was mentioned by, uh, by I think all three of you is this, is this tension between on the one hand the image that we get from reading and from looking at pictures being a constructed image in a way um, but at the same time this also strive for authenticity, for authority, for finding a trustworthy <laughs> voice, for experiencing something that's real and perhaps the, the sort of um, thing, Alex, you talked about when uh, the tourists say they want to take unconventional photos because they feel that that's somehow more real perhaps or more authentic in a way than, than what they usually see, even though they then can't help themselves and do the same thing everybody does, and so that raises the question whether there is any such distinction to be drawn, really. But um, uh, Rachel also said, you know, you, you want to create a, a true, you want to give a true account, you, you, you strive for some sort of truth there. Um, and so one question would be perhaps, what does make an image or piece of travel writing true? If there's any, or it is, can we even say that, if, given that everything's constructed to some extent, can we draw that line? Also, as, as someone who writes and who takes photos, um, I began the question, what, how do you make the choices that, sort of, what to write about and, and what pictures to take and, um, and the research that goes into that, or the way you frame your stories and, and your pictures. And, um, yeah, so maybe we can sort of begin by talking a bit about that. Yeah. 
I would say the same really for any writer, I think. I mean, everybody who's worked in law or medicine realises that we're incapable of telling the truth, in, even when it's about ourselves, to save our lives. You'll have patients tell doctors slightly different versions of things every single day for their month-long, two-month-long hospital stay with no apparent motive. And when you speak to police, which I used to, this is a little bit off travel writing now, they have the same problems with gathering witness statements. So to an extent, we all, every single one of us, have some problems with our memory that will distance what actually happened to how we remember it. I think it's the integrity of the writer or the photographer that gives you truth. That's difficult to know without getting to know that person. And that's why mass media has been so successful until now, because you don't get to know until social media, which is just slightly changing things. Uh, you don't get to know the individual author or photographer. Most of us, it's impossible. But you do get to know the brand. You get to know the BBC or the publishers, and you start to trust that the editor is actually looking out for you and presenting truth as best they can that way. Right, so it comes down to some so somehow finding what you take to be a true voice in, in either what you see or what you hear recorded or what you, what you yeah. read. And, um, but you'll get it wrong. <laughs> I wonder um, if, if the language of truth is the right language for talking about this, because what fascinates me with travel writing and fiction isn't, I mean, this is why I would look a lot at fiction, it's absolutely not true in a sense, but it enriches the world, and, and, and a lot of travel writing, people go to this, every, every moment of our existence is true, because the truth isn't the problem. The problem is having a rich existence, having a full interpretation. The point isn't just to describe the world, the point is to paraphrase Marx. <laughs> the point is to interpret the world or, or to make it a rich and interesting trip. So what's the difference between a trip which is really boring and a trip which is really exciting and interesting? Isn't a question of truth, it's a question of an enriched way of seeing. So for, I mean, in, in the case of some of these disaster events happening, or, or in the case of Ladakh, what, what does traditional life mean in the modern world? It's not a question of truth, it's a question of interpretation. It's a question of an enriched way of seeing the significance of it. So, yeah. Maybe that relates to or an enriched way of recounting it. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. that is true. Right? Yeah. You, you made the distinction, but then of course it raises the question, um, if what we are looking for is not facts, but some sort of interpretation that manages to convey something that we perceive as authentic, or if we don't want to use the word truth, then you know, to what is, why do we think then that Photoshop, for example, is problematic? I mean, you bring out certain aspects that you think actually represent something that you feel is important or real about that situation. How is that different from you know, framing a story in a certain way of bringing out things? Why do, why do people get upset about the fact that you know, people well, use Photoshop? A claim, an image makes a claim to truth, which can be deceptive. And then people can get upset about deception. But you can't get upset about an interpretation. Yeah, I was just thinking that perhaps people would not be upset, for example, in the photo you showed if the caption said you know, exactly what was happening, or there was a separate photo of what you'd said. And people would know what they're looking at. I think that's often missing and that tends to be what upsets people, they feel deceived. Yeah, 
one last thing that I um, thought was interesting, and partly because we did another event actually on Friday, which was about poetry, uh, and one of the things that was said there is that there seem to be more writers of poetry than readers of poetry. And, and we said the same, there's more writers now, you know, everybody in a way is a writer, whether we just write a little tweet or a little status update, or whether we actually write a novel or <coughs> a longer essay or something like that. We all ask, in a sense, writers that maybe there's more people spending time writing than reading and engaging with literature, which, um, which I think is interesting. So when you, as writers, write, do you actually then write for others, or do you, in a sense, write more for yourself to maybe um, you know, get clarity about what, what your own interpretation? I write for the thing itself. I write for the book, uh, first of all, for the piece, for the idea that you have of a reader. Uh, and poets have always complained that there were more people writing it than, than reading it. Um, but, you know, writing poetry is not quite the same thing as being a poet. Uh, writing is not quite the same thing as being a writer. Um, and there are, there are degrees. Um, and no harm or shame is done to any of us who, you know, I spend half my time uh, well, most of my time writing rather than actually writing, uh, because it's hard and difficult to to, to reach anything that will that will that will last or touch, and that's the job. Um, but uh, you know, the fact that more of us are able to do it, it, it is great because mm -hmm. more people will come through, and we will all be lucky. So, do you think that, especially now with social media? Um, given that what Alex said, what we're looking for perhaps is something like a richness of interpretation, that this is getting richer now because many more people have access to this media, or is, is there also risk of losing something in that sort of stream of information that is combining this? Yeah. Um, this is just an observation between um, broadcast media versus social media, which is what we're talking about. So just three days ago, down the road at Bush House, BBC World celebrated its 80th birthday. Grand old age, still going really strong. Uh, the BBC prides itself not to have a view. Completely impartial, completely objective, which I don't necessarily buy. Now, going back to social media, I woke up this morning to a tweet, which is quite alarming. A woman threw her baby out of the window, 14th floor. Right? The baby obviously didn't survive. And I was really curious, so I clicked on the link. And the story actually happened somewhere in Russia. But a tweet came from India Today, a fairly respectable magazine, which I follow. And I wanted to know more. Uh, all it says is, 27-year-old Russian woman works as a model. She couldn't sleep because the baby was just crying and crying. And then she got really fed up and threw the, threw the child out the window. That's it. Uh, what I wanted to uh, illustrate, perhaps uh, explore with you guys, is um, for me, factual reporting is just what happened. And basically, that tweet and a very, very short article did that. But I think I would be much more interested to understand the context. How it happened, why it happened, and all it says is this woman has been taken away to have psychiatric examination. To me, that's just leaving very wanting. 
And I, I love the, the photograph, what actually happens outside the frame, these arches, uh, you, you put it, you know, it wasn't real, they, they weren't real, they were just models. I think the, 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 the paradox these days is we often want immediacy, give it to me now, 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 and nobody actually has the time or the patience or the attention span to really understand not just what happened, why it happened, how it happened, why now, why not yesterday? Why not you know, two, two years from now? Uh, and I'm, I'm questioning, and just to wrap up really quickly, you've been talking about the truth. I just came from another session earlier in Sheikh Zayed. It was um, rhetoric, lies, and politicians. And a whole panel argued that we don't really want to know the whole truth because the truth probably is not that appealing. And I'll leave it there. Uh, I just wonder what you might have to say. I think it, goes, it depends where you go for your information. I mean, if you read the New Yorker or the Economist, even or the Atlantic Monthly, all of which have growing subscriptions for their paper-based products, uh, you do indeed get all that fact um, as well as its context. It is available, um, but you know, the reader of today is in some ways the travel writer of yesterday. It's a question of finding out who to trust, where to go, what to look for, what's worth harvesting, and what's not worth reading. Yeah, I, th I think there's something interesting in that people don't really want to know the truth. Um, I'm reminded uh, of the Patagonian giants. So the earliest travelers to Patagonia reported they were giants. And you may have heard of these mythical Patagonian giants. And they came back, these giants were meant to be sort of nine, ten foot tall plus. And other explorers went down. And they came back saying, yes, indeed, there were giants, ten, eleven foot tall. And more explorers went, and it went on for two or three hundred years. And, and everyone went and saw normal-sized people that came back and reported giants. To some extent, this happens. So the, the, what occurs in the mass media representing distant, far-off lands isn't representative. And when tourists go there and encounter the truth, they don't photograph that. They photograph the non-representative stage photograph and bring it back to perpetuate or be complicit in the imagination of these wonderful far-off lands. There is a complicity in it. The truth is sometimes boring. Hi, um, I wanted to ask a question about, so we were talking about social media and how social media means that anyone can be a writer. Do, and this is to all of you, do you think that because information, travel information is so readily available now through blogging, through Twitter, that people are less adventurous, that they don't have to make the effort to go to a new place because they can just log in and say, oh, I'm in Guatemala right now, where am I going to go, instead of heading off by themselves and finding out? I think social media has <laughs> I don't think that it stops people from being adventurous, but I think one thing that has definitely changed in the experience of travel is the feeling of isolation, perhaps, from your homeland. Because as long as you can get to an internet connection now, you are very much connected to your friends and family. Whereas it wasn't that long ago when I started travelling that you know, once I went, that was it. Nobody could get in touch with me because I, the only way to do it would be a very expensive phone call or a letter and nobody knew where I would be. And when, if I did manage to get to a phone, it would be the middle of the night back home. So when I went for six to eight weeks, I was gone. 
for six to eight weeks. Now, my mother worries if I haven't tweeted for a day. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so I think for, yeah, for a new generation of people going traveling, the sense of being apart from your home has gone. Uh, but I think the sense of adventure is different. I mean, it's very hard to find places now where no one has been. So I think some aspects of travel have got better and some have got worse in terms of when you're actually there, but I think it's a very different experience. Yeah, good. Except that, um, you know, no one, you might have been there three days ago, but maybe nobody's been there today. You know, I think the whole real world renews itself wonderfully yeah. uh, quickly. Um, and in terms of you know, commun communication and the internet, uh, it, it's true that the only really wild travelling that your friends seem to do now is when you get a broken thing saying, that, you know, I'm in Peru and the internet's really bad, uh, and finally you know, they're on their own and you worry about them. Um, so, yeah. I don't think it stops us travelling though, I think people travel more than I think the social media uh, maybe changes a bit the direction of the relationship because we've looked at sort of travel writing and fiction stories leading into in individuals going off travelling. But in a sense, the social media turns the individual traveling into the hero of the story they're telling. Mm, so it becomes a story. They're constructing a story through the photographs, through the tweets, through the blogs. They're the hero of their own narrative, which, which means that they, the site of fiction has moved, in a sense, from something distant to something where they are the protagonists. Okay, I think um, the microphone. Hi, thank you very much. It's really enjoyable. I, just a very brief story. When I was down the traveling down the Am the Amazon, however far we went to every village, the people I was with were always very upset the fact we hadn't reached the authentic place. You know that these people, the villagers, were waiting for us with their with their fridge of Coca Cola, sort of for, for the people who were traveling. I'm just wondering whether travel writing has to tell a necessary fiction about what people are going to expect in terms of an authentic experience, because well, it doesn't matter how far you go, the act of traveling seems to me to uh, constitute the people who you see, and the act of writing does so even more. You know, it's the dream of authenticity, isn't it? Um, it doesn't exist. You know, what exists is the case, but as soon as we mediate it or expect it, um, it becomes, it's like you know, going to the Guggenheim in Bilbao and 10,000 people are taking photographs of it, ripping reality off, really, in, in, as quickly as possible in order to possess and, and take home. I remember being really confused by that, because you know, it's the question is, is anybody actually here, uh, or, or are we all here in the future looking back at it? Um, so yeah, authenticity is a big one, but uh, the, luckily uh, the comedy and tragedy of people offering you Coca-Cola on the banks of the Amazon is the kind of story that is worth telling. I think a lot of people when they travel now as well though have images set in the past, that perhaps is where travel writing photography, you know, from the past, maybe now, but has come from. So people are confusing uh, modern <coughs> developments in places with a lack of authenticity. And I've certainly heard people saying, oh, it's terrible that this, you know, particularly America gets criticized for corrupting cultures of the world. And sometimes when that is a criticism level, I'm saying, well, do you just mean because now there is electricity and hot water and things like that? That's not American culture. That's progress, but often some people when they travel don't want to see that, they want to see uh, a land that doesn't exist, but in time perhaps, rather than because it never existed. It's interesting we use sort of, with tourism, tourists want to see and we see and we see. Why photography is so important to tourists is because they can't talk the language. Yeah? It's, it's, a, it's a visual relation with the other. 
And the cultures which we observe and we think are authentic or not are almost entirely visual cultures. In, in Ladakh, where I was doing my research, if you ask anyone, what is Ladakhi culture? They'll tell you it's the dress, it's the food, it's the buildings. I say, well, what about the stories? Don't exist. Why? Because the tourists can't hear them. What is culture is constructed through the tourism process as a visual thing. And, and the visual is very static. That's the problem with the visual. As you take the photographs, you say, well, you can document the change, you can see the dress is gone, and so on. Um, but culture itself is a living thing, changing all the time. Uh, can you hear me? I'd just like to offer an image uh, which is not visual, but it's Patrick Lee Fermer. Uh, riding across the great Hungarian plain, which I always think of in relation to travel writing. But I wanted to pick up on um, the question of truth and objectivity. Um, and I thought of Wittgenstein's truth is an agreement in judgment. Um, and I suppose what I would be looking for is something like the integrity of informed opinion in relation to writing generally. So it's very much, it is then about who is doing the writing and the integrity is genuinely trying to communicate with me, not trying to sell me something. Um, the other point, I suppose, is in relation to this dreadful word, objective, which I think is a problem in our language because it's, it's a power play. Oh, well, of course, this is objective. You're just being subjective. And whereas neither objectivity nor subjectivity exist. So would somebody like to address some of <laughs> this, please? Prepared to cheer it. I'd be happy to do it. But objectivity and subjectivity in favour of integrity and non-integrity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I did, as part of my study in Ladakh, a sort of ethnography of the souvenir sellers. So I got close with a number of souvenir sellers. I brought tourists, got a commission, and we were working together. <laughs> <laughs> I gave my commission to the tourists. They were in. So that was that was ethical on that. Um, but. So, so, of course, a lot of fakes are sold. Yeah? Fake tankers, religious paintings, fake yakbone carvings, and, and so on. And they, you know, I remember being with them, and they'd have the religious paintings, and the, the tourists would come, and they'd handle them with such care, put them down so carefully to, to imbue them with value. And when the tourist goes out there kicking them around, and they're like, well, sure you're going to damage them. They said, it just adds value, you know. <laughs> 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 they're making antiques. Yeah. So if the tourist buys one of these, and I would interview the shopkeeper and say, well, don't you feel guilty? You just, you just sold this you know, thing, it's fake, made often by the, the paintings, religious paintings are actually made often by children, and, and they have black and white photocopies with numbers for colors, and they just do a number of colors. So that's how it's done in reality, in factories sort of setups. So you sold one of these for a lot of money, isn't that sort of you know, bad? And, and the answer, I thought, was, was kind of quite wise in the sense that the tourist um, actually got what's real in the back at the moment. That, that is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't know it. Well, maybe they do know it. <laughs> oh, I think there's a degree of complicity, actually. Again, they, they, they possibly suspect it, but they don't want to believe it. I can't talk that story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think there's a question in the front. Uh, very cool. Yes, you don't need it, but I guess for other people. Um, well, I, I've got sort of a couple of thoughts and there's questions, but I'm not quite. Hopefully, you can clarify them. I mean, so one 
thing that occurred to me when you're talking is I'm not really sure what travel photography or travel writing really means in terms of its borders. I mean, Abigail talked about you know, the tsunami in Japan and suddenly you're doing photojournalism, which seems to be something slightly different from travel photography, perhaps not. I mean, travel writing to me seems also, I mean, I'm a photographer, so I'm sort of interested in these things, and I, travel writing seems to me to be a much more personal, quirky, you know, um, almost gonzo experience. I mean, you could th almost think of Hunter S. Thompson as a travel writer of Las Vegas, whereas I doubt he could have been a photographer of Las Vegas in the same way, a you know, travel photographer. Um, and I mean, <coughs> I, I, I wonder whether photography is in some way legitimizing certain cliches about societies as we have as outsiders. So, you know, if I think about myself taking photos in London, there are certain things that you immediately want to take a photograph, take a photograph of London. I mean, it's Tower Bridge, it's Big Ben or whatever, because those are the legitimate things. And you talked about this epiphany of truth when the, you see these things, but I, I wonder actually whether it's more a celebrity moment. You know, I've seen celebrities in the street, and I mean, you see Michael Caine at the pub, and you're like, oh, that's Michael Caine. And he looks just like Michael Caine. A bit older, a bit different, but you know, you have this sort of special resonance. And I, I think it's sort of like that when you see Big Ben for the first time or something else. I mean, it's different. Um, but um, so I, I guess, I mean, one question I had was like whether travel photography is somehow legitimizing. Um, what is valid, and in some way putting a barrier between us and the real in a way. I mean, it, it, re it interprets for us already what is what we should get out of a culture. I mean, I mean, when tourists come to London, they go to Big Ben and this, they don't go to an East End cafe, perhaps, and think they're having a valid experience, perhaps, unless they've seen a certain movie or done something else. So, I mean, I, it's not really a good question, but I wonder if you could expand on that. Like, what is the role, and what, what is it doing for us as writers? And can you actually be a travel writer from within your own country, or do you have to be a foreigner? to get that perspective. As far as the writing goes, I don't think there are any um, boundaries to it, really. Um, uh, I once commissioned uh, a writer to do the writing of the mountains and expeditions, and I asked him, could he, could he climb the inside of his house uh, from the basement up to the top floor and write it as a travel piece, as a mountaineering piece, and did absolutely beautifully, and there was, you know, eight people heard it on Radio 3, it was top. Um, <laughs> there aren't, um, you know, what, what is great travel writing? Well, you mentioned Patrick Lee Fermer, um, who purports to be telling the story of a, of a journey, in fact does the journey a few times, and then fills in the middle, half with truth, half with memoir, um, half with facts, and, and gets close to something transcendent, actually. May or may not be the story of the great Hungarian plane, but in reading it, you feel you cross it, you know, and that's an authentic experience. Um, and, you know, what, what are the other kind of great travel writers? The person who lives there, so don't even have to be a native. Jan Morris living in Venice, absolutely extraordinary book with the most beautiful first page, in, in, you know, in travel writing. Of course, Morris would say, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a travel writer, I'm a writer. So there's that thing again. It's, it, it's genre, it's tables in bookshops. It doesn't mean anything, I don't think, with the titles. Like um, I just wanted to come back to your point or your question about whether or not photography is a barrier. And I'm really glad you brought up the part about recognizing a celebrity because I was thinking the same thing. There is that same moment of recognition. Um, from neuroscience, that's a useful way. It's a very useful skill to know when you've seen something before. That recognition is going to set off, uh, it's going to short circuit, it's going to make something make sense, it's going to mean you get back to the right cave and you don't forget where you left your woolly mammoth or whatever that you killed it. And so, 
it's visual shortcuts we've been talking a lot about photography, the image of the Big Ben. We're really trying to communicate with people and everyone will have a slightly different set of things about what that picture of Big Ben represents to them and they may not have thought about it, but it is a shortcut to accessing really deep emotional and informational collection in someone's brain. It's a symbol. And we've talked a lot about photography as if words and language are anything different to that, but they're not. Um, the picture of Big Ben, or the words of the English language, again, it's only because we've all agreed what words mean to us that you're understanding what I'm saying and what the other speakers are saying. It's still just a set of symbols that's trying to communicate something from inside. And so I think with a lot of travel writing and travel photography, it can help to use these big icons to set the scene, to fast forward to you, the part of your brain where you've stored what the Houses of Parliament mean to you, what Britain means to you, what London means to you, and all of its history, and then show something extra or something new or something up to date or something that's trying to express a thought that I've had to get it to you. I was wondering though, like, how do you make as writer, as writer and photographer, how do you make the choice of what to portray? Because in, in a sense, isn't it because you know you, you do set the tone and you do sort of determine what others will then recognize when they travel to that same place, right? So how do you sort of make those decisions? And does it make a difference whether you're very familiar with the place or whether you just commissioned to do it and you you know you just spent a couple of days there? Um, sort of does that change the way that you pick up on certain things? A lot. And, I mean, you, you mentioned Ian Sinclair sort of saying, picking up on things that only he and, and maybe a certain group of people could ever sort of love. But he obviously makes very sort of conscious choices about what he chooses to portray and what he takes the real East London to be or something like that. Yeah. So, um, so, and do you feel a certain responsibility when you do make those choices, or how do you go about that? Um, well, I, I, I do a number of different pieces of work, so sometimes. Uh, I'm reporting the news of the travel industry. Sometimes I'm putting together guides, you know, which bars or restaurants can be recommended in a certain area. And then the freedom that I really love with my blog, that I suspect writing novels has the same thing, is that great scope to really put what your th thoughts are about a place or a situation and just give them free reign. And so when it comes to that, I really write about things that move me one way or another. And there's no more, uh, nothing more objective the word that to use, really, than that. So, but in, that's very much in social media when you say that you're the hero of your own story. Yes, that's, that is exactly what people's blogs and Twitter accounts are about. And most travel writing novels, it is their own story, yeah. I would say. And, and if the writing's good enough, it doesn't matter what the writer writes about. No. <laughs> but Jimmy Wolf writes a short story, A Mark on the Wall, which you know, might come close to explaining why the poor lady in Russia threw her baby out of the window. I mean, it, it, it does, in a way, it, it doesn't matter where you turn the gaze. The, the trick is to find something that, that inspires it. Mm. Which goes perhaps back to your point about richness, right? Not so much. Yeah, well, I, I see the kind of writing, travel writing, and the fiction as, I mean, in a sense, the pioneers. Of, co of course, the world is, is explored, but the, the world of human experience is open. There's still a lot to explore, different experiences of places. 
And as travel writers and photographers, you're going out and pushing the boundaries of how we can experience these places and setting up, if you like, templates for people to follow. And the stories they narrate, they have a genre. The genre is produced by the literature which went before, by the fiction which went before. I mean, I think you see this in the extreme. Uh, if I were doing another study of tourism, I think what I would look at is this growing trend to go to the scenes of films. You know, like where Braveheart was filmed. You can go there, you can go there, and, and, and they will rent you some of the swords. Yeah? You, can, you can dress up and you can charge down the hill. What's going on? Yeah? So the, the social media has provided this template imagination which you literally step in. And, and I think that's, that's something of, of an exemplar for all travel. You're becoming the hero in the story you read about before when you see Big Ben. What, you, the, the point is you've seen Big Ben before you got there a million times. And that's, that, that was the, the thing I said first, which I think is, is at the heart of a lot of travel. We go places we've never been but always seen. And, and how do we know we've got where we're going? Because we see what we saw before we went. That's how you know you got there. <laughs> I would say perhaps one thing to add on that subject, though, we've been talking about uh, travel writing and narrative and my blog and social media is a similar thing to a novel we haven't really touched much on is commercial uh, aspects and for that what do they cover they cover places there's a countries where people they feel people are more likely to go to will be how they'll choose to fill their magazines so they are going to put France and Italy stories there ahead of stories in the Congo they love anniversaries because you know Cambridge University celebrates 800 years, Charles Darwin 200 years, great. Charles Darwin 199 years, no, not running. Completely arbitrary, but because that's what sells. Um, but that's the Michael Caine effect. It's having signposts, it's having something, yeah. some transcendental signifier of which we can lock everything else to. And yes, which can be the same symbol. Yeah. Angelina Jimmy, oh, she had a baby in Namibia, right? We'll have some Namibia travel stories then. That's all the good. Namibia is a great place to read about, to write about, and to go. Yeah. Okay, I think there's lots more questions. Um. Thank you. Um, I confess I may have done some of that film based travel. Or I would distinguish two kinds. There's a kind like going to New Zealand because that's where the hobbits are filmed, even though it has nothing to do with the original setting because it's imaginary, of course, versus going to a place where it's sort of where it happened historically, maybe not exactly the place, like Braveheart. I'm sure. I imagine they filmed it in Scotland somewhere. I hope they did. It would be funny if they filmed it in Bosnia. Although that would be an interesting uh, parallel. And then versus a place that's famous just because it was in a film. Um, the one thing that strikes me, and this panel also exemplifies it, is that uh, in, in literary festivals where there's a panel on travel writing, travel photography, it's often the one that agonizes a little bit more about issues like authenticity, truth, exploitation, commercialism. Um, and I confess, as a lover of travel and tra travel writing, but I broadly define to include reportage and you know, obviously the classics of Rebecca West to Fremont and others, even though I know and Robert Chinsky, who's obviously famous for making up most of it, even though he's a damn good writer. Um, that he deems it. Yeah, not <laughs> Some of it. He couldn't have possibly been to 50 wars in uh, 20 countries on a low budget of a Polish 
news agency. The question I ask is, are we putting too much moral um, 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 yardsticks on something that to me is not necessarily uh, a separate genre, but perhaps suffers by being something that is so tied to a popular human activity that has become much more mass over the last 100 years. 100 years ago, very few people traveled. They're like the middle class and the rich, and that's a small group, and they like to go places to confirm their status, to confirm their knowledge. You know, the grand tour for the English gentleman being a perfect example, or the, the German uh, gentleman, or the French gentleman. But nowadays, many more people can go, and they go to some odd places, uh, or they go to the same places, you know, uh, uh, whatever. And uh, so oftentimes, uh, there's going to be a lot more repetition of the same imagery, and there's, of course, a localized um, apparatus set up to feed the hungry whores with the McDonald's or their film stock or the internet cafes, et cetera. And maybe that is exploitation. But is that the reason why travel writing and photography gets this extra burden of proving itself? That I don't think it's necessary, but please, comment. Comment. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I don't really uh, agree with, with, with genre. You know, it's, it's a commercial decision, isn't it? Where we put all this stuff, how we classify, how we will find it, um, and in, in the end, no doubt, the internet will burn all the bookshops down, and then uh, there will be no more tables uh, with local interest or London travel or travel writing, and people will just follow uh, words or interests or recommendations or tags through, you know, the great unknown to um, to a download. Uh, so th that will that will serve uh, those of us that doesn't put out of business. <laughs> uh, in, in terms of bearing the extra burden, I think that there is an assumed responsibility that someone will try and repeat what you've done in a lot of aspects of travel, whether or not you're actively encouraging them, which some of my articles, the mainstream press is, you know, yes, why you should go to Seville, and these, the, these are the things that you should do when you're there. And then the writing that I do on my own site that feels much more sort of for me that. Yeah, I'm wary that people will use that to go and do something themselves. I think that's the hidden promise of travel writing, and that's why perhaps you need to be a little bit more careful because it's also things people will go and do in different terms to making a recipe for a dinner party that's going to cause you an inconvenience for a few hours if I've done that wrong. Um, but very often, this is a huge expense, perhaps a once in a lifetime opportunity. And so I think that sort of hovers around the edges of <coughs> travel. It's a bigger upset if, if you have misled somebody. Um, I think we have like five minutes now. Let's get a question. I was uh, I was so interested in the very first part of the um, of the presentation because it reminded me of an experience that I had last year, the idea of uh, the tourist taking the photograph of the thing that they'd seen a photograph of already. My partner's English brother, an American wife, and uh, two children came over to Scotland, where I'm actually from, and wanted us to go up there. They asked me lots of questions about where they should go. So I tried very hard to suggest places that 
to me were interesting and not probably not the photographs that they would have seen elsewhere. And it soon became apparent that actually they weren't the slightest bit interested. What they wanted were the icons. Um, and that's precisely where they went. So they went to Edinburgh Castle, they went to a Highland Games, um, you know, places that I would never really dream of going. And there were plenty of other places I would have wanted to take them. Now, I, until it dawned on me what was going on, I was actually getting quite upset about that because I felt I wanted to show them the things about my country that I valued. So I wonder what kind of responsibility you think that people writing about somewhere actually have to the people who live there to try and portray something that isn't just those iconic images and to give people a different kind of experience and maybe different expectations. Right, so you say you don't just have a responsibility for the people who travel, but also for the people who are already there. Yes. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? Because um, when you're sent, uh, especially on journalism jobs, your responsibility in theory is very clear. It's to your reader and therefore to your editor. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it, it will fail and it, it shouldn't and won't run if you don't uphold responsibility to the facts as they were on the ground or the people you find. Um, so yes, you have a huge responsibility, a total responsibility to the people you write about to get them as right as you possibly can and to inform yourself as much as you can about them. Um, but uh, it is funny, your story of people being speaking. I imagine going to a Highland Games, which uh, a, Scot, a Scot wouldn't necessarily do, although obviously lots of them do, would probably be very revealing. Uh, and in some ways, these are the, the sacred you know, totems and sites of our, of our modern pilgrimages. And we need to, some of us have a need to tick these places off, as it were. But there's nothing you know, intrinsically wrong with that. The process of, uh, I, I don't know what it's like, but if it's anything like a Welsh rugby match, you know, being shoulder barged and urinated on, it, it's actually very authentic. But you can switch it off. In terms of like having spent in, uh, in Northern India, but also having interacted with the native states, can you sort of. Is there a sense that they feel somehow misrepresented, perhaps? There's a social psychologist part of me, a social psychologist, who says, you know, what is London? What is London? How many stories are in London? How many places are there? How many, you know, what, what is it? The, the, the totality of any place is so complex and vast, our little brains can't deal with it. And so you find again and again in, in issues of representation a sort of the formation of iconic images that the mind clusters and clings <coughs> onto, little nodes of stability, which get reproduced and reproduced. And it would be great if we were all open and, and, and saw cities for their complexity and places for their diversity. And Ladakh has, of course, people just as modern as any of us and people who are traditional. I mean, if people could see that complexity, the world would be a better place. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, my take in terms of icons I feel there's probably a divide between things that really stand out in the world that almost don't belong to the country they're in they're just that staggering that to be in Egypt and not see the pyramids or it would just be a, wa <laughs> you know, a waste um, and, and there are several things that I can come up with things <laughs> there are several examples of several icons around the world, natural or man-made, that I think whoever you are, wherever you're from, I think personally I always recommend you go and see them, even though yes, there will be a very long queue in many of them, 
and people will try and sell you tourist tax and people who live there won't go and see it because again once you've had that one wow factor the way our brains are wired you don't get the same release of chemicals the second time you see it and the third time and the fourth so when you live somewhere and you've seen it however many hundred times yourself you're just not that impressed um, anymore so that's one part of it. And the other part of icons that perhaps upset people more is probably more stereotypes. You know, oh, you know you're in X country because they do this. Um, and that's, I think, when people feel that their behavior is getting labeled, and particularly if they feel they disagree with that, then they can get upset. Oh, you're in Ireland. Oh, you better go to the pub. Oh, you better have a pint. And uh, you know, that's something that's reproduced time and time again. Well, met many Irish people who never drink at all who are actually getting really tired of that just as one example saying well no I don't I hate reading about things oh you're Irish so therefore you must have Guinness um, so I think there are two parts of sort of icons and representations um, that you need to think about in terms of travel writing in terms of responsibilities to the people who live somewhere it's something that weighs probably a burden I carry around actually it's lovely to hear your positive side, that you want people showing to readers other places to go and see. Because in many parts of the world, people are very upset when travel writers point this out, because their lovely, charming cafe now has a hundred people queuing up at the door with a load of cameras and backpacks and everything else, and they say, you've now changed it, you've ruined, you've ruined it, <laughs> this atmosphere. And so I think that is always, uh, the dilemma particularly because there's such a thirst for what's perceived as off the beaten track and something new and something small and something that isn't full of tourists but once it gets caught, the more it gets covered by travel writers, photographers, bloggers, whoever, the less, you know, it, it erodes away at the very thing that made it special to begin with. And I haven't found a good answer to that really. Yeah, I think with that we are at the end of our time, so thank you, thank you all for coming and for your questions, and please join me in thanking the speakers.